passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is the why. The podcast ends. This is the way the podcast ends. This is the way the podcast ends. Not with a whimper, but with a bang. Not with a whimper, but with a bang. That is not a good work. What are your names again? My name. It doesn't matter what your names are. You walk around here interrupting the rock, you like you haven't seen the sun in 20 years. You like you just stepped out of Oliver Twist. Please, sir, may I have some more advice, sir? You want some advice? Here's the rock's advice. Shut your mouth. What you want, what you want. How about what the rock wants? Allow me to reintroduce myself. I am the jabroni beating, pie eating, trail blazing, eyebrow raising, talking is done, you're out of your class, no sleep till Brooklyn, the rock whips your ass. and sisters we are coming to you from theater d row j seat seven i am the godfather nate milton and this is the rocky maya via picture show the world's favorite pop culture and pro wrestling program dedicated to the genius of sports entertainer turned thespian dwayne the rock johnson now playing this week 2006's southland tales i've never considered committing suicide I'm a pimp. And pimps 
All right, and since every Siskel needs an Ebert, every Ebert needs a Roper, and every Blaine needs a Twan, I've got a special guest in the theater this week. If you've listened to post-wrestling, if you listen to the Kings of Sport, any of the shows that I've been on, you know this man. Uh, he is a former WWE writer and a current producer for Complex, as well as the host of some of the world's most misunderstood podcasts, such as... <laughs> Which, which might be a reason why he has some connection, some kinship with the director of Southland Tales. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Brian. Revolution by surprise, man. This week, brother. No, here's the thing. Like I, you, you mentioned, you know, keep it 100. Much like this film, I think that podcast was just 10 years ahead of its time. You know, like I think now people are starting to come around on the little more long form, documentary based. Uh, you know. Uh, wrestling podcast we were just we were ahead of the curve we we're ahead of the curve man i like that i like that interpretation of, of that podcast and i'm really glad you're here in the theater with us this week brother because you were here for episode one of the rocky mavia picture show where we reviewed the cinematic masterpiece the scorpion king and at the conclusion of that episode you made it known brian you yes. spoke truth into the universe that you wanted to come back to review southland tales and, and so here you are some people might say I was shooting my shot. I think it was just the secret, you know. I, I pulled a Ryback. I, I channeled the big guy. I put out in the universe what I wanted, and uh, and it has been brought back to me tenfold. Mm. So because you're back, because you're our first returning guest, we don't need to go into your relationship with The Rock and, and Dwayne Johnson and his transition from the ring to the big screen. I think we'll start off by talking about your relationship with this movie, Brian, right. man, because you were very enthusiastic about this picture, and some other people I talked to about Southland Tales were decidedly less uh, enthusiastic. Yeah. So, so what, what, what's your relationship with this movie? So, I, I mean, I know you, you mentioned I've been on the show before. I was on the first episode, Scorpion King. Um, I would contend uh, that this is the first episode mm. of this podcast and it is the last episode of this podcast because this is the only film Dwayne Johnson has ever done he has done wow. a lot of movies but this is the only film he has ever done this is the only movie you can kind of look at and say hey this thing has some higher aspirations it has something to say you can argue it has too much to say in mm. fact it maybe has enough to say for 20 movies and that's why he's only done movies since then you know he's like I would, let's just spread the meaning of Southland Tales over the next 20 movies I make um, I know that, you know, it, this is a movie that's, it's, it's big. It swings for the fences. It does a lot of crazy things. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people look at it and it rubs them the wrong way. It's very big and weird and wild, but it is none of those things by mistake. I don't think mm -hmm. you look at it and say, oh my goodness, he accidentally cast all SNL actors. Uh, I, I, none of the things that are wild or weird or crazy about this movie are by mistake. It's not an accident. Uh, Richard Kelly is making very specific choices here. So I know people, you know, I think kind of look down at this. I, I, I know, you know, not, not calling him out, but I know OSW did an episode on this movie and I, I will not watch it. Um, be, because, um, you know, this is, I think, honestly, one of the best films of the 21st century. I, I think one of the big things with it is that it was, um, it was ahead of its time. It, it really was. I think when it came out, it came out towards the end of the Bush uh, era. A lot of people didn't really want to think about that. And I think a lot of people, when they looked at the satire of this film, just thought, oh, it's just so, it's so thudding and it's so obvious. And he just like kind of goes over the top to an extent that just feels outrageous and ridiculous. 
and here we are, you know, ten year, ten, over ten years later from when this film came out, and you know, the idea of, you know, we we have Trump in in the White House, and you know, Stormy Daniels is now like one of the most important political figures <laughs> of the last five years. Like these are, so to look at this movie and everything that it kind of. Uh, uh, presupposes doesn't sound so crazy anymore. So I guess that's kind of my defense of the movie. We can kind of get into mm. some of the, the history and the past of it, but that's that's what I'm drawn to. Um, well, one of the things I will say about this film, Brian, is, well, first of all, I want to apologize to all of the Race to Witch Mountain fans <laughs> out there for, for the shade and the, the slander that Brian Mann has put on the rest of Dwayne Johnson's filmography. Uh don't worry, that's going to be a fantastic episode when we get to it. Uh, but, Brian, you talk about, you know, the, the time period in which this movie was made, and it felt very much to me while I was watching it, mm -hmm. this is very much kind of rooted in post-9-11 sensibilities and, and Bush-era sensibilities, and it feels like a film that could only have been made, you know, within a five-, six-year span uh, right. in, in which it was made. While at the same time, like, so many of the things in this movie, again, like, feels kind of, when it came out, felt weird or out there, far-fetched. I think things like social media, uh, in particular, mm. have really made the world of this film feel a lot more realized and a lot more actual now. Um, you know, I, I think we can kind of—this um, is also a major—this is a very interesting pivot point for Dwayne Johnson in his career. Um, I'm going to use that as a teaser. Let's not talk about that until after we've discussed the film. Um, I think first kind of want to get into sort of the background of this so, film. So you're saying it's almost like there were actually two Dwayne Johnsons? Uh, yes, but uh, Bakshi Santoros is a pimp, and pimps don't commit suicide. Um, <laughs> Nubian Eyes will be watching you. So I think um, let's start kind of at the beginning uh, with this movie. So, um, well, well, hold on, Ryan. Yeah. Hold on. Before we start with the movie. Well, I was going to talk about the backstory, but yeah. Well, I was going to say, because I want to I want to save all that until after we get through the the, the fun stuff. Okay. We, we can't have uh, – we're going we're gonna to flip the script. We're going to have dessert before mm -hmm. we eat our vegetables. Okay. Uh, and let's start with the Time Warp, Ryan, man, because mm -hmm. this is a very special edition of the Time Warp. It's almost like you booked oh, yes. yourself – I forgot about this segment. I forgot about this segment. Yes. Uh, it's almost like you booked yourself into a main event spot, Brian, because <laughs> normally on the Time Warp, you know, we go back and we check out – what was going on in the culture, particularly when we talk about music, uh, the, the week that this movie dropped. And this movie, if you go according to Wikipedia, has two premiere dates. Yes. We've got the May 21st, 2006 premiere where it uh, was debuted at the Cannes Film Festival. And then we've also got November 14th, 2007, when it was released in the U.S. So, mm -hmm. Brian Mann, we have two songs to look at oh okay in time warp this week let's start with may 21st 2006 do you know what song topped the billboard chart that Ooh. week i'm gonna say um it it was uh the soundtrack to Idlewild was the top <laughs> album of the country <laughs> Oh, that was that was that's a that's an underrated movie. I think Idle Wild is the Southland Tales of uh, mid two thousands hip hop. Uh, sure, in, in that it was uh, an, an uncompleted film. Because <laughs> I don't know if you knew this, but like Idle Wild was originally supposed to be like an HBO miniseries, and then it got hacked really? down to a two hour movie. 
Yeah. Interesting. Much in the same way, and we'll get into this, Southland Tales, the version that uh, you watch and that most people watch if you just rent it off iTunes or something like that, is a kind of hacked down version of the of the full film. But we'll get in that in, in, in a second. Um, let's see. I'm going to say it's 2006. Um, I'm going to say it's a uh, – I'm going to say it's Stronger by Kanye West. Mm, interesting guess, and, and... – the artist is kind of in the Kanye West, Jay-Z camp, but it is not Yeezy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the number one song this week, Brian Man, or that week, uh, should I say, uh, your boy Daniel Powder had a bad day <laughs> because Rihanna's SOS knocked his song off of the top of the charts. Okay. fair that's fair i would say a bit of a you know listen i'm sure daniel powder's just waiting in the shadows he will get his revenge one day he's letting he's he's letting rihanna have the decade she's had he's waiting for his comeback <laughs> uh, back in 06 were you were you a big rihanna fan because this might have been i think sos was probably the first song yeah that i associated with rihanna i mean i remember liking jay-z's verse on um on umbrella it kind of took me a while to come around on her because I think there is kind of a, especially then when I was younger and I was, you know, I was in, I was just starting uh, college. I was in a little bit more of a of an alt indie rock kind of, you know, <laughs> underground thing where it's like if someone was a popular uh, pop star, uh, I kind of need you to prove yourself to me. Like mm. it takes a while for me to sort of be like, you know, is there really, is there really some goods there? Um, and uh, so I would say, yeah, at SOS probably wasn't on board with Rihanna uh, yet. You were more into the killers at that point, I'm assuming. Uh, yes, uh, as uh, as is evidence for my love of Southland Tales. <laughs> well, yeah, Rihanna to me is somebody who kind of, I, I won't go as far as to say came out of nowhere, but I certainly didn't see her becoming kind of the musical icon to some that she is today. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought she'd be, you know, somebody like a Monica, somebody like a Brandy, even, even. Uh, that has their run and then they're kind of forgotten. But Rihanna has shown that, that, you know, she could stand the test of time. So so that is who was number one back on the week of May 21st, 2006, Brian. But our daily double here, November 14th, 2007, who was at the top of the Billboard charts? Hmm. Uh, and I'll give you a clue. Yes. There is a connection between Rihanna and this artist. Uh... Was it uh, was uh, was was Drake having his first uh, his first hit? Hmm. Is that is that your final I'm answer? Gonna, I'm gonna say Drake, but I don't know what Drake it would be. It's not like Houston, Atlanta, Vegas, because that wasn't like that big of a song. No. Was it something? Was it like uh, something off? 
I don't know. Let's say, was it headlines? <laughs> it was not headlines, but this person was someone who would go on to make headlines, most not for the right reasons. Oh, God, now I know. The number one song was on Kiss, November Kiss? 14, 2007. Yep, Kiss Kiss. Oh, okay. Chris Brown featuring the king of autotune, T-Pain. Yes, yeah, not a bad track, not a bad track. Yo, this is Nappy Boy Radio Live with your boy T-Pain. We love rap music. Listen, uh, we got a caller on line one. Caller, what's your problem? Hello. I'm on the radio with T-Pain. How's it going? It yeah. ain't going good. My girl ain't doing a thing she used to do at all. I got just what you need. Brand new Chris Brown, T-Pain. You heard it here first. Nappy Boy Radio. We love you. She want that love and love and love and kiss, 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 kiss. Here's the thing about Chris Brown, Brian, and I have a feeling oh, that... Oh, the I, thing? I, There's one thing about Chris well, Brown? One, one thing about Chris <laughs> I Brown. I have a few things about Chris Brown. I mean, there's... There, <laughs> Chris Brown is much like Krista now. They're known for one thing. Uh, but I will say, and I feel like I'm going to be in the position this week of maybe defending people from my home state. Uh, but Chris Brown is someone who, if, if, he, if you could find a way to separate the person and the music and put them in two separate bodies. Yeah. The musical Chris Brown would be amazing, and the person Chris Brown would be in jail. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, a part of that is because, like, I mean, the guy is rich and famous and um, moderately attra uh, attractive and, 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 uh, and successful uh, and talented, and, you know, that, that has afforded him a lot of opportunities. <laughs> yeah, but he makes, he makes good music. He can sing. He can dance. It's just like... Oh, why Why couldn't these powers been given to a, a better person? He makes 45-track albums for some reason. <laughs> uh, so, yes, Rihanna and Breezy, in, in a weird universal twist of fate, uh, they they share the title for the Time Warp this week, Brian Mann. Uh, yeah, they, ultimately it would end tragically, uh, much like uh, uh, many of the careers associated with this film as well. <laughs> So let's talk about Southland yes. Tales, Brian. Let's uh, let's talk. Let's let's you know give us some background, and then we'll kind of yes. get into the particulars and the box office and all that. But give us a little bit of background because, like you said, this film has uh, has a bit of a convoluted backstory, I guess. Yeah. So uh, you got to start with the writer and director of the film, Richard Kelly. So uh, Richard Kelly is, you know, he's a film. Uh, you know, he goes to film school. He's writing. He he writes a couple screenplays. Um, of those screenplays, he writes. Uh, he's got. Uh, you know, he actually writes Southland Tales before 9-11. Uh, he writes Donnie Darko, which ends up being his uh, first film. He also writes a movie called Domino, which ends up becoming a, a film that Tony Scott makes. Um, and so he makes, and if I'm not mistaken, I think he sells the Domino script to help finance um, Donnie Darko, which is pretty much what Tarantino did when he sold True Romance to help finance Reservoir Dogs. I could mm. be wrong on that. Uh but I'm pretty sure that's how it works out. He's a uh, Virginia filmmaker, but he kind of 
kind of comes up in like the Austin, Texas scene um, a little bit. And so he makes Donnie Darko. It's this, you know, modest hit, but it becomes kind of this cult favorite. It has um, a very dedicated audience and people start to really notice this guy and feel like this could be like a, a next important American filmmaker. A lot of people are paying attention to him. Donnie Darko uh, ends up kind of blowing up on home video uh, fairly fairly well, so much so they actually theatrically release a director's cut of the film a couple years later in 2004. Um, not as good. They add way too much stuff into it. But uh, people get you know really excited about this guy, wondering what his next film's going to be. Now, he writes um, Southland Tales uh, before Donnie Darko uh, comes out. Donnie Darko actually comes out October 26, 2001, the, the day the Patriot Act gets signed uh, into law. And the, the, the war on terror picks up, and it really changes the way that Richard Kelly starts to see the world. So Southland Tales was a script he wrote that originally was just about um, a police officer, a porn star, uh, an action uh, hero, and blackmail. Those were the only aspects of Southland Tale as he originally wrote that it. it was supposed to be like this satire on Hollywood kind of making fun of Las Vegas. Mm. And then he builds it out and he starts to grow and he starts all these ideas, all these feelings he's having uh, as, as the war on terror is beginning to pick up and we're invading Iraq and people are kind of dealing with, with 9-11 um, and he's just kind of seeing the country change. All of it starts to go into this film and he starts to, you know, he, he starts to think, big about this movie has he, he is kind of creating this whole world and that eventually leads to southland tales and southland tales as we currently see it um i don't know if you were aware of this but was a part of a much larger expanded universe there actually are three uh prequel uh, comic books that are written when you watch southland tales it has those three you know kind of uh title markers throughout yeah. that are chapter four five and six because chapters one two and three are um, comic books. Yeah, and, I saw that, and I was like, okay, okay, George yeah, Lucas. I he's doing a Lucas here. thing. He's kind of doing a Lucas thing. <laughs> Not just that, but the screenplay, The Power, that is the script that um, yeah. Boxer Santoros uh, maybe wrote. Um, you kind of learn in the larger comic books that he didn't actually write the screenplay, but that's not important for the movie. Um, that screenplay, Richard Kelly writes that full screenplay. It actually gets pu- gets put online. Uh, you can read the full thing. Um, and it's So he been- actually wrote the screenplay that The Rock has in the movie. Exactly. And it wow. kind of is all part of this. And he's Because he's putting all of his thoughts and everything into this one kind of work. And so um, they shoot the film. Um, because it is so kind of big and crazy and ambitious, um, it still is fairly small. It's only a $17 million budget. Um, they're editing the film, and they decide, hey, wouldn't it be funny if we sent uh, this kind of work-in-progress version of the movie to the Cannes Film Festival? We submit it, expecting it to be rejected. They send it to the Cannes Film Festival, and the people at Cannes love it. At least that's what they claim. You can never know. I mean, Khan, I think, is always trying to get really big directors there. And Richard Kelly seemed like he was going to be one. And they say, hey, we'd love to show this thing at the festival. Suddenly they're like, okay, let's show it there. So Southland Tales, an unfinished version. Um, and, and honestly, a large part was they were um, – the, the, the production had run out of money, quite frankly. Mm. And they needed more money to complete certain visual effect shots in the movie. So the idea was we're going to go to con. We're going to shop this thing around. They weren't planning on showing it in competition. It ends up getting picked up, shown in competition, incomplete. The, the film is not done. There's like 
special effects shots missing, and it shows at con, it gets booed. It gets booed <laughs> resoundingly. Um, people hate this thing. He starts to panic. The producers panic. Even though it premieres at con in 2006, the movie does not come out for over another year later in 2007. And during that time period, everyone sort of panics. And, um, you know, so you've, you've seen um, the version that was released theatrically. And in that version, it kind of has this very messy, like that first three to four minutes. Yeah. It's just sort of like a, a television screen and like all this information is being thrown at you. That's essentially like a, a very like sped up summary of the comic books. Because they got so concerned that people wouldn't understand the world of this film that it just needed to be kind of forced on them right away, right up front. You, you know what? They, like the first, like you're saying that that opening kind of stanza for the film. When I was watching it, it felt very reminiscent to uh, the Animatrix. I don't yes. know if you ever saw that. Mm -hmm. Just kind of like this is stuff that you probably should know before you watch the movie, but it's all just kind of thrown at you without any kind of context for it. Right, it's it's a big information dump, and I think yeah. that, you know, the first 10 minutes of any movie are so crucial, it sort of determines what relationship the film's going to have with the audience, and I think that so many people get turned off right away. Um, it's, so, I, I, I think that's a bit, of a, a bit of an issue. It comes out, and it does terribly. Um, the idea was that it was going to open small on a handful of theaters, and then they'd expand it outwards, and it was coming out at the end of the year. Like, they, I think they kind of had, like, some awards ideas for this movie. Mm. Something happens. The week this movie is set to release, a writer strike happens. Sarah Michelle Gellar was supposed to host SNL that weekend to promote the film, uh, while Sean William Scott and Dwayne Johnson were doing all the talk shows. Writer strike happens. SNL's canceled that week. None of the talk shows happen. No one knows this movie is even coming out. So it opens on only 63 uh, theaters with the idea that it would start small and they'd open it wide. Um, already kind of had bad word of mouth because of what ha happened at con. I was think this the, uh, was this the writer's strike? I want to say that happened during season two of heroes, which kind of completely killed yeah. that show. There's a lot of movie. Uh, there's a lot of, like, uh, the first season of breaking bad is kind of cut in half. That was also the year the golden globes didn't happen. It was yeah. a press release that got put out. Um, yeah. So that's kind of, you know, that was that that's where things were at. And it really hit this movie. You know, a lot of people, a lot of things got affected by this, but this movie in particular got hit hard because no press for this movie happened. Um, if you weren't aware of it already, there was, there was no word of mouth on this thing. So it comes out, um, total whimper. No one sees it. This movie cost $17 million. It so, makes so less. It wasn't a bang. It was a whimper. It was a whimper. Uh, it, it costs $17 million to make, makes less than 400000 uh, yeah, yeah. Let's hold on, hold on. Right. Let's let's set, let's set it up properly. As you mentioned, Brian, man, the the budget for this film seventeen million dollars. The box office three hundred seventy five thousand dollars. Q Keenan yes. and Kel. Why? <laughs> and so, um, you know, and then it ends up coming out on DVD. Uh, no one really notices. It, you know, it just it just kind of looks like this thing that was. Um, a, a a a director kind of getting over their skis on the soft uh, on their sophomore film and people start to rethink like hey maybe Richard Kelly doesn't really actually know what he's going what, what he's doing and I think some people looking at the Donnie Darko director's cut also sort of indicated that as well people started to think oh maybe this guy doesn't really know 
why people like Donnie Darko. Maybe he's honing into the wrong parts of his of his um of his work because all of his movies he only made three uh all include like wormholes and quantum physics and like well people actually liked the comedy of donnie darko the, the wormholes weren't the big thing for them um so 10 years go by and this is when i get reintroduced to the film when the film hits its 10th anniversary in 2006 uh, uh 2016 people start to write kind of reevaluations of it and that original cut that screened at the Cannes film festival that ends up being played on television in Europe because the distribution rights over there were a little different. So suddenly people get to see that original version uh, with the finished effects, and people start to react a lot more positively to that yeah. version. And that's a version, if you're in Europe, I think you can find. I think they play it on ITV, and it's kind of easy to find if you know where to look online. And that's the version that I then rewatched in, 2016, in 2017 and just— fall in love with. I, I think it's a, a, a great film. I think it's weird. Um, I, I, it, it's character first. Like, a lot of the sort of, like, weird things about how the world works, you just sort of have to pick up as it goes along. And it's more so, like, color that's interesting to, to kind of learn. It isn't a thing where it's like, you know, so in the con cut, for example, it starts that Moby score is playing throughout the entire intro. You have the Timberlake narration uh, going on. There's not that big information dump of explaining like this entire world to you. Instead, they Timberlake's kind of just there to explain who the people are and what their relationships are to each other. And then everything with U.S. ident and all the stuff, you kind of just pick it up as you go along. Mm. So real, real quick, let's uh, let the listeners know who this film stars of course we've got Dwayne the Rock Johnson yep. uh, because if we didn't we wouldn't be here uh we've got Sean William Scott let's not just say back. who is starring to me let's say who they're playing Dwayne Johnson <laughs> is playing an amnesiac uh action star named yes. Boxer Santoros who is having an affair with a porn star played by Sarah Michelle Gellar he is also married to Mandy Moore who is the daughter of a of a Republican senator uh, played by Holmes Osborne, who is um, currently running for vice president. So that's some of it. Then you got Sean William Scott, who plays twin brothers, one of which is a cop, and uh, the other one is going to stage a racially motivated shooting to, to, to kind of like, almost like a Black Lives Matter thing. Before Black Lives they're trying to stage a Black Lives Matter video 10 years be uh, uh, you know, uh, ahead of it, you know? So those are your main characters. Then you also got like Wallace Shawn as a <laughs> as kind of like the like the Elon Musk of this world. Um, you got uh, you got a lot of SNL cast members. Yeah, um, a lot of small, SNL cast in these small members. Characters. And and like that's the thing. Like this is all purposeful. Like Richard Kelly understands how ridiculous this whole world is. He's trying to make this thing that is first and foremost a satire. There's a reason why you have you know Amy Poehler and Sherry O'Terry. And um and uh and, John is in here. And, and and Nora Dunn and John Love like there's a reason why all these people are showing up. Uh there's a reason why John Larroquette has a major role. Like it, yes. it isn't an accident that there's a lot of comedians in this movie playing against type. It, the craziest thing about this movie, Brian Man, mm -hmm. is Bai Ling is not the craziest part of this movie. No, she's actually the most like restrained part of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh so let let's go back to two thousand and ten. Yes. Because you said, you know, we talked well before we turned the mics on this week, that initially you didn't like this movie. 
Correct. Yeah. I, I, so I saw this movie, and I think um, I kind of just got caught up in the narrative that everyone else did. Um, you know, I, I think that the, you know, I, I think that kind of the, the opinion was kind of baked in on this one before anyone saw it, um, just because of how kind of venomous the response at con was and how it had been butchered, and then it gets dumped and no one sees it. So I ended up seeing it on DVD when it finally comes out, because um, I think it only played for like a couple of weeks. And I think only in one theater in Atlanta. So, you know, I, I, I finally see it at home on DVD. Um, you know, the first 10 minutes really doesn't work. I'm just watching it being like, this thing's a fucking mess. And whenever, and I think that's kind of, you know, and I think also that my relationship and the way I watch movies has changed over the past decade. But whenever the, the film would show me these, like, weird, different, strong, bold choices... I chose to reject them rather than accept them and try to understand why, why are they doing this thing? You know, why does, um, you know, Justin Timberlake, you know, take a shot of this like mystery drug to his neck and then like <laughs> lip sync a killer song. Like instead of being like, why does that happen? I instead went like, I don't like that that's happening. Rejected it outright. Um, why, why are these two cars having relations? Yes. Oh, that scene is so, so you, yeah, that's the thing. Like you can't really go in order on this thing, but that scene is so great. Where like, they're all sitting around, they're screening a commercial for this, uh, for this group that it's like all these, just like wealthy, like donors and like the Republican Senator and everyone. And they show, it's like a car fucking another car. And you're like, what the, and he, and he just goes, was that two cars boning? And, and then his, uh, John Larroquette, his like second command, he's like, uh, yes, I believe it was, but don't worry. That's the European version. Americans will never <laughs> see that. And it's such a great, cause like you watch it and at first you're like, and I think it, it's, it's stuff like that where I think people looked at it and are like, oh, that's just so easy satire of like, this is what car culture in America is. But they take it a step further and like, no, 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 that, that, that's the European view. So it's like, there's this weird, crazy, fucked up, sexed up thing out there, but we as Americans can't handle it. And it's like it's just like I don't know. There's just so many, like, when when this movie came out, the New York Times, um, you know, gave it like they were one of the few people who kind of gave it a positive review. And one of the things they said was like it's big and it's messy and it kind of doesn't all work, but it has more on its mind per minute than you know most other films in total. So it's a very ambitious movie, and in that regard, like I I kind of have to respect it and and you know defend it. What I will say and what I will let the listeners know is when I first came into this movie, because this is the first time I've ever seen it, mm -hmm. I had a lot of kind of hearing people's views on it and looking stuff up online. And I think Roger Ebert said this is one of the worst movies he's ever seen. Uh, and so I had this notion of what this film was going to be. And I told Brian before we started recording, uh, I was like, you know what? I didn't hate it. Like, yeah. I, I can't go as far as to say I loved it or even if I liked it, but I didn't hate the movie. Like, it, 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 first of all, it looks great. I yes. will give it that. Like, it's, it's a, Richard Kelly knows how to use a camera. Film. Yeah. yeah. It's a beautifully shot film. Uh, and so, like, just off the top, it, it looks great. It's, it's a, and I think, you know, maybe, maybe this is my reading of it, Brian, but it felt like a, a filmmaker's film. Yes. Like, if, if you're, into that creative process and into the the visual presentation of ideas, it's something that'll resonate with you. But if you just want to watch a movie, this is probably not the the film for you. Right, and it's also interesting because I could be wrong, but when I just kind of step back and look at Dwayne Johnson's career and all the movies you're gonna you know review of his, I feel like there are probably three movies that you're mm. that you'll review that 
are not Dwayne Johnson movies. They're movies that he's in. Um, Be Cool, I would say, is one. He has a small supporting role. Um, This, and then probably Get Smart. I think are the three that you kind of look at and say, like, those aren't Dwayne Johnson movies. There's somewhat like the Fast movies, you know, he's just in. Pain and Gain, he gives a great performance. But all those, it kind of feels like they're Dwayne Johnson movies. They feel very on-brand for him. Um, so this one, it's, it's interesting that we're talking about this one. I'm so excited that we're talking about this because this is definitely the one that feels the most out of step, if I have to say, with all the other movies that are going to be covered. <laughs> and this is a very important time for him because this is the first and last time that he trusts himself in the hands of a filmmaker where he says, maybe I don't fully get it, but you're the guy you do with me what you want. And he does some Mm. really weird, interesting things in this movie. And that's why I love that Dwayne is the guy starring in this movie because he purposefully Richard Kelly gravitates to and casts actors against type. Like it'd be very easy. Cause I think him, his name was so hot. It was so big. He could have gone out there and tried to attach a big action star to that role. He actually could have gone out and been like, well, what if we get like a Brad Pitt in that role? Or what if we get a, you know, someone who was like Hugh Jackman, I think would be at the, at the right level, you know, for this kind of movie at that time. But he purposely doesn't. He gets Dwayne Johnson. He gets, he purposely doesn't get people that you think of automatically for a lot of these roles. He casts people against type. All the supporting characters are... SNL people like you have John Lovitz who's supposed to be like this very (laughs) scary you know racist you know fascist cop and you get John Lovitz for that role uh they purposefully go against type in a lot of Sarah Michelle Gellar is playing a porn star which is not like that was not her kind of (laughs) she's playing Buffy you know she's known as that she's known as playing this this high school student for all of these years I mean I I know Buffy from Swan's Crossing but that's just (laughs) me like shout out to all the Swan's Crossing fans out there because because you got to grow up sometime <laughs> but like you get that and then you also get like you know Sh- sean william scott in a very um probably the best he's ever been you know i, I don't he's think, really good in this one he's great and i don't think he's ever asked to be dramatic like this he richard kelly is purposefully challenging these people and i think he purposely wants to make a movie that feels weird and different and a little off he doesn't want to make it – he wants to make a, a film that's purposely challenging. He said his main two influences on this movie were Andy Warhol and Stanley Kubrick. And I think you really see that with the way that he wants to – he wants it to be weird. He wants it to be challenging. He could have played it safe with a lot of these roles. He could have played a more traditionally, you know, kind of sex pot, you know, for the for the Sarah Michelle Gellar role. The fact that you have Mandy Moore in this movie way before she was, like, really seen as an actress. Like, it's – all of his choices are interesting. And then you have Janine Garofalo in a pretty major role in the con cut. It's not in the theatrical cut. It was like she was in like half a second of a scene right. in, in, the, in the cut I watched. She's in it very briefly. Uh, Justin Timberlake, who hasn't really started doing acting yet uh, at, at this point. Um, I think all the choices are very big and interesting and bold. And that's how Dwayne finds himself in this kind of a movie. Um, this was an interesting time for him because he was, um, at this time, he was also supposed to be in the film uh, Robert Altman was making at the time when he died. So that, that didn't go further. This was a time period where he's trying to figure out who he is as an actor and as a movie star, and he's purposefully trying to challenge himself because you get walking tall doesn't work. You get the rundown doesn't work. He's starting to realize that maybe I need to be a little different, so he does be cool. He shows people that different comedic side of himself. He starts saying, I want to work with these interesting directors. And he does this, and this film does so poorly that he decides never doing that ever again and uh, 
the closest he comes to working with the director who challenges him is fucking Michael Bay. Like that's <laughs> even that's pretty safe though. Getting back to something you said earlier, where you were talking about uh, kind of Richard Kelly's influences, you know, talking about Andy Warhol and uh, Stanley Kubrick. Mm-hmm. Another name that kind of came up when I was watching this to me was Philip K. Dick. Yes, definitely. Because one of my favorite, like, low-key movies that I enjoy but nobody else I know seems to enjoy is A Scanner Dog. Yeah, I thought that's where you are going to go. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the drug uh, – the, the the use of the drug in this movie is definitely very similar to how it, uh, it's used in Philip K. Dick's uh, work. Yeah. And, and yeah, this, this felt kind of similar to that. But one of my complaints, Brian, you know, yeah. we praise the cinematography, but one of my complaints watching this, you know, fresh for the first time – is this movie felt more like a collection of cool or interesting scenes and less a cohesive plot that I could follow from point A to the end of the movie? 100%. And here's just, I know it's a little unfair. Um, that's exactly how I felt about that cut that you saw as well. I think the con cut uh, is a lot more streamlined, makes a lot more sense. It's longer. It's about 10 to 15 minutes longer. And, and I think a lot of stuff makes a little bit more sense. Now... The other thing, though, is that this movie, halfway through the film, flips everything on its head. And that's, I mean, you got the first half of the movie that kind of feels like this very loud, satirical, messy sort of movie that I think a lot of people rejected and rolled their eyes at when it came out. And I think when you watch now, especially in the age of Twitter, a lot of it makes sense, where it's this big, you know, there's this, there's these big, huge problems facing society. Uh, You know, there's this big energy crisis in the film. There is this um, machine that has been built that creates unlimited energy, but it's actually slowed down the rotation of the Earth and is causing the world <laughs> to end and has created a, a, a hole in the fourth dimension. Uh, but, hey, don't worry about that. You have this big, you know, NSA, which, again, at the time, a thing like USI didn't, the NSA or whatever, coming out, people rolled their eyes at it, like, oh, it's, you know, just Patriot Act stuff. Now, post Snowden and everything, we see that and we're like, oh, yeah, that seems, you know, that a lot of the ideas that seemed far fetched at the time when it came out don't feel that way now. So you have that. However, everyone is so consumed with entertainment and uh, with celebrity. And you have all of these people who are all working, um, everyone's got their own little plots and schemes. And it's just everyone trying to like shake the world and trying to make sense of the world that they live in. And that's what I love is that that first half, you have all of these little, all these little pieces. And you're like, how is this? all linking up and everyone is two-faced everyone is like you know you never know whose side anyone's on you don't know what ultimate play anyone is is playing and i think halfway through the movie where uh boxer ends up uh you know he kind of ends up back with the frost family and accusations start happening and people start pointing their fingers because this movie essentially takes place over the course of two days so it's the end of the first day and you start being like oh maybe this Energy Baron is actually the one secretly fronting uh, the the anarchists, and maybe he actually isn't in the big in the pocket of like this big uh, you know uh, big business uh, you know uh, center. Who knows what, where it's actually playing? And then that that second half of the film plays out, where I, I believe that's when it starts to be called Wave of Mutilation starts yeah. to play out, and you start to understand that there's this much larger thing, and it really goes from this sort of shaggy dog satire into a very large Philip K. Dick-inspired uh, science fiction film. Um, and, and and it's interesting when you kind of, you know, get there. And a lot of the, the – and that's the thing. Like, if you're not on board with this movie in the first half, you're definitely not on board in the second <laughs> half where you start learning that, like, wait, someone – like, 
Wait, so Sean William Scott and Dwayne Johnson went through a wormhole, and so now mm-hmm. there's two of them, and they killed the one Dwayne Johnson, and it gets to the end, and you know, you asked me to beforehand. You're like, you need me to explain this thing in three minutes. Um, essentially, you get to the end, and it is the Book of Revelations. This, this, it is a adaptation of the Book of Revelations. Um, and that's what the last, you know, 30, 40 as, minutes As of if the this movies. plot wasn't dense enough. Exactly. It becomes it becomes a, a literal biblical epic uh, there at, at the very end. And I was, like, reading this article about it. And uh, if I had to guess, I think you're probably a little more uh, familiar with the Bible than I am. Uh, but just, like, sort of reading the way that so many of these things match up in terms of, like, you have the, you have the energy baron and he's kind of, like, He's kind of the Antichrist, and he's installed his false prophet. And then you have this Christ figure who comes along and sacrifices himself, and it causes, you know, this new dawn and all this stuff. Um, yeah, there's a lot going on in this movie. <laughs> yeah, even down to the uh, Kristenau character. And, and I, was, I saw some of that stuff, too, when I was researching the movie as kind of a, an allegory to the Whore of Babylon. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, this— there's there's layers there's there's levels to this man <laughs> it's so weird it's like richard kelly this you know he only ended up making uh at least as of now one more movie after this it feels like he was like they'll never let me make another movie like this so let me get all of my ideas into this one mm. movie um which he's like know, a cruiserweight on nitro you got five <laughs> minutes for a match get all your stuff in which uh yeah you know I, I think for most people they would say it doesn't work um you know, after this movie, he makes um, The Box three years later, which is that um, it, it's like it was supposed to be a fairly small, like Twilight Zone type, you know, mystery movie. Uh, it stars Cameron Diaz and James Marsden, but then it includes aliens and wormholes and shit. Like it was supposed to be like his <laughs> his safe little like, hey, That's you know, I'll make, this, I'll, I'll make this movie with some big actors. It'll make some some money. I'll get out of director's jail. But no, that that movie, like, <laughs> I think it cost thirty million and made twenty or some shit because it's weird. And then he hasn't made another movie in the last ten years. Uh, he's had a couple movies that were supposed to happen that kind of fell apart. Uh, unfortunately, he was supposed to make a movie with James Gandolfini when he died. Um, but yeah, we're just kind of you know here we are you know ten years later and uh, haven't gotten another movie from the guy. Okay, and that, that's that's something I wanted to talk to you about uh, doing this review, Brian. And it will kind of tie into what we used to talk about all the time on Keep It 2000. Yes. And, you know, a person we talked about on that show a lot was Vince Russo. I was so afraid how... we were going to go there. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, bro, I got an idea about a wormhole, see? I, I can um, guarantee you Vince Russo hates this movie, though. <laughs> uh, but but the, the idea, the notion of, you know, having these great ideas but maybe not being able to execute it, in the best way for your audience. What, why, why do you think that, you know, maybe outside of Donnie Darko, a lot of his films haven't really resonated with people. Um, I think because large, I don't think he's, um, all that concerned Mm. (laughs) with, 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 with the audience and it making sense to the audience. I mean, you watch Southland tales and it's not a movie that seems, uh, it's not trying to meet its audience halfway. You kind of have to meet it on its own terms. And I think what kind of happened to him, and you see this with a lot of different filmmakers, um, they're they're smaller movies, they're more reined-in movies that are a little more limited, um, tend to be early successes. And I think a lot of directors have a hard time uh, when they grow um, and when they get more money. And so you look at Donnie Darko, 
and he maybe doesn't get to do all the big crazy stuff that he wants to do. Um, and even though that is a crazy movie, you know, it's about this antisocial teenager who, you know, talks to a, you know, a, a bunny, you know, this sort of, that only he can see, and then there are like wormholes in, involved and shit like this. Of but course there are. <laughs> but there's enough of the sort of just like suburbia, you know, kind of angsty teen stuff that was very easy for a lot of kids to uh, to to latch on to. Um, and then I think this movie kind of gets uh, over its skis and again with, with, with the box. And I think someone else who I can kind of compare him to, um, filmmakers I love, but the Wachowskis. Uh, mm. the, the Wachowskis, they do um, – the Matrix. Well, they do Bound, which is very good. And they do The Matrix, which is this massive, huge, you know, punches through. Like, it, it is a watershed moment in, in, in films and kind of like with action movies, there's before The Matrix and after The Matrix. It has these massive ripple effects. But after The Matrix, I don't think they've really released a film that has been as accepted in the mainstream as that film was. I mean, the people don't really like the next two um, Matrix movies. No. Speed Racer is a movie that's very misunderstood and I would say very ahead of its time as well. Uh, Cloud Atlas gets really misunderstood and some of the, like, the, the whole people playing people of different races, uh, you know, kind of rubs people the wrong way. Jupiter Ascending doesn't really, you know, um, hit. And I think that's because when these filmmakers are allowed to fully, uh, they're kind of given the check to sort of fully realize their visions, I think sometimes they stray a little too far away from what your average moviegoer wants. Um, I don't think that that's a bad thing necessarily, but I think that's kind of um, those growing pains that they sort of uh, run into. Mm. As they get more power and more freedom, they sort of uh, stray. They sort of stray too much for, for, for a lot of people. So do you think a movie like this could be made today? Um, that's tough. I was thinking about that. And it's weird because it feels like this movie should be made today. I feel like a lot of people watched it now. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, did you feel like when you were watching it, um, for you, did it feel like it was still relevant and was speaking to today's, um, world? Or did you feel like this thing feels like a time capsule? It's so, it's so dated because I think when it came out towards the end of the Bush era, people were like, uh, I'm over this. And then when people watch it during the Obama years, it's like, man, we, that was that was really pointed in the wrong direction. Look how good we are. And now here we are. And it's like, oh, wait, no, this movie was just ahead of its time and really predicted everything perfectly. Uh, a little bit of both. Like, yeah. I feel about this the same way I kind of feel about uh, Idiocracy mm -hmm. in that it certainly feels a piece of the time in which it was made, but it does resonate now in the, in the Trump era. Right. Like ERC uh, comes out, people kind of go like, ah, oh, look how cynical this thing is. Like, it's kind of like, it's kind of elitist. And then here we are, like Trump gets elected, you know, 10 years after that movie comes out and it's like, Oh shit. <laughs> Save us president Camacho. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I think there are certain things that, that do, resonate now you know in in 2018 and 2019 and and you know beyond that might not have felt as prescient you know 10 years ago right and i think it's that richard kelly i think was onto something and did notice kind of a trend that was emerging um before a lot of other people did um and, and that's um you know kind of the way that it 
the way that it views media, uh, the way that it sort of views crossover, like one of the one of the greatest things in the in the whole you know little movie that I think works, I think again at the time people rolled their eyes was that they create a wormhole, and the people who create this wormhole can decide who should get to go through this thing first. And the first thing they think of, oh, it should be an action star. We should put an action star <laughs> through this thing first. <laughs> and that's how you know Boxers and Toros is it, it comes to be the first human to go through a fucking wormhole. Um, you know, it just it's and, and go to the fourth dimension. It's really, um, I, I just think it, it has a lot to say, and I think that for a lot of people at the time, it was just too cynical. Um, but it, it did kind of, overall, I think, accurately sort of d- d- depict something. All right, Ryan. So now let's let's talk about some of these characters yes. and and the the portrayals of said characters. You know, let let's touch on Rock real quick because we already talked a bit about yeah. Why don't Wayne we have Johnson. to? I mean, uh, it's it's a pretty straightforward cast. No one really does anything weird or wild. <laughs> yeah. uh, but but uh, you got the Rock playing yes. Boxer Santeros, uh, aka Jericho Kane. Jericho Kane. Uh, and and I I want to say like he's good throughout the film, but mm-hmm. I want to say like that last third of the movie, you know, when when he's uh going aboard the Zeppelin. Yes. Like I love a lot of the stuff he does there at the end of the movie. Uh, what, what did you feel about The Rock in, in, in this role? Yeah, because the first half of the movie, he's – and again, this is – and I'll kind of parrot this and Pain and Gain, I think, are two kind of perfect roles for The Rock. Because in this movie, he gets to be very, very silly without ever really losing any of his gravitas. Um, yes. the, thing, the thing with him, and I think this was a large part of why he broke through in WWE and kind of ended up – completely breaking the mold of what a wrestler is supposed to be after him for the worse, I would say is that he's funny and he's funny in a way that a guy who looks like that shouldn't be like he, he's more of a, of a Jim Carrey than a um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like he has legitimate comedic chops that are kind of trapped inside this big muscle man's body. So it's like you watch the first half of this movie and What's so interesting is that you're being told he's this major action star, but he's not acting like it. And you're being told that he is, like, this big celebrity, but he has no idea who he is. Um, and he's just sort of, like, floating in this world, and he's constantly, like, doing, you know, like, the weird twiddling his his fingers and shit. And, um, correct, and, and he's, like, trying to, like, play. Like, he's trying to, like, do this very, like, steely, like, I'm, you know, I'm this guy, but really he's... Yeah. Really, he's just playing Jericho Kane because he doesn't know who he is. He's so instead he's playing the role in this screenplay that he has. Um, also, correct me if I'm wrong. Is this the only movie where The Rock says the N word? I think it might I, be. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, because he says it in the scene with Sean William Scott. Um, and and I'm, I'm actually surprised it didn't happen in Be Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it with, would make sense with that there. movie's kind of racial politics. By the way, so. Weird little thing, side note, talking about that. So, Be Cool, directed by uh, F. Gary Gray, doing a sort of unofficial sequel to a Barry Sonnenfeld movie. <laughs> Do you know what F. Gary Gray's next movie is? Oh. His next movie is Men in Black International, which is also a pseudo-sequel yes. to a Barry Sonnenfeld movie no yes. one wants. <laughs> So it's just hey, weird I, that that's I'm like. I'm actually intrigued by by Men in Black International just because I love uh, right. I love Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson. He just he has such a weird trajectory. Uh, he does, and I think Be Cool was a big part of. Uh, and Brent and I talked about it because mm-hmm. prior to Be Cool, he was doing a lot of quote unquote black movies. Right. 
And I think Be Cool was kind of, even though it wasn't a great movie, it was kind of his audition for the quote-unquote mainstream. Well, the thing that's interesting about F. Gary Gray, what happens in his first turnaround as a filmmaker is uh, makes gritty urban film that people love. It allows him to make a popular mainstream car movie. And then he makes a sequel to a very Sonnenfeld film no one wants, and it ruins him. And I think he's going to do that again because he makes Straight Outta Compton. Then he does Furious 7 or Fur- uh, 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 Furious 8. And then now he's doing Men in Black International, and I think it's going to destroy him again. <laughs> so I guess he's going to do a fucking sequel to uh, – what was that, like, that one that he did that was uh, Gerard Butler and, uh, and uh, fucking Jamie Foxx? What was that movie called? It's bad. It's not good. Oh, the one where Jamie's like a lawyer? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Gerard Butler is like uh, uh, on death row, and he's like uh, like a I forget the name of that is. Um, people are yelling at their iPods right now, and I could look it up very easily, but I won't. I won't give the film that that amount of respect. But I think that's what's going to happen to F. Gary Gray one more time. Oh, so yeah, shout out to F. Gary Gray. Yeah, uh, you know we're, we're glad you're here. Uh, but let's move on to our next character, Brian yes. Man. That of course is the one and only Krista Now. Mm-hmm. Played by Sarah Michelle Gellar. Uh, of course, we know nobody rocks the cock like Kristen Al, nope. Brian Mann. But nope. <laughs> what, what did you think of uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar? I think she's really uh, fun. I think she's, I think she's like, it's, everyone in this movie is making such weird choices and are doing such, I don't know, it's like, this movie takes so many risks and does so many things that are kind of different and absurd. And I think that the average moviegoer might look at it and say, oh, well, they're failing. Like, she's not, she's not doing what this movie asks her and she she feels very vapid a lot and i think that's the point i think this whole time um i I, she's a very serious person who i think is very um committed to her beliefs and is and um but those beliefs might you know make you kind of question your it might make you tilt your head like the way that her um krista now show uh looks Mm. um in a weird way i almost feel like she is a she almost, to me, reminds me of a Kim Kardashian before yeah. Kim Kardashian. It reminds yeah, me of— very much uh, like Paris Hilton-y. Right. And the thing—I'm reminded of this quote that Kim Kardashian was—who was she being? She was being interviewed, I think, maybe by Piers Morgan or something like that. And the question was, you know, how does a woman with seemingly no talents, uh, <laughs> you know, who doesn't do anything, like, create this, this multi—you know, this decade-long show, all of these brands— you know, how do you do it? And she, her response was, well, that seems like a talent to me. And mm-hmm. that's how I kind of feel about Krista now in this, in this thing. Like people kind of look at her and say like, oh, she's a porn star and sort of like roll their eyes at her. And they're, everyone's constantly bringing this up of like, you know, like, oh, this, you know, this cock uh, chuggers, you know, movie that she's in. Like everyone's kind of rolling their eyes and laughing at her and thinking they're better than her. What actually her moral, uh, you know, her drive and her commitment and her sort of moral superiority to all of them is kind of not questioned in the movie and she is you know she has a new show she is launching this energy drink um you kind of learn in that the larger you know sort of like uh expanded <laughs> you know for better for worse it, it I, i'm referencing things from these comic books um she is also a psychic you don't need to know that for the movie but essentially what it is is that book uh, the, the the screenplay the power she wrote it jericho uh kane bakshan Torres did not write that screenplay she wrote it and has convinced him that he wrote it when he's dealing with amnesia. 
Um, and it kind of, that screenplay completely predicts what ends up happening at the end of the movie. But that's not really important to the film. That's just something that's in those comic <laughs> books. Um, but no, I, I think it's a, you know, she's a very kind of morally righteous. She's on the right side of things. She's very pure. She wants to make the world better. But throughout all of it, you know, people are kind of looking down at her and, you know, laughing at her because she is a porn star and don't want to take her seriously. Yeah, I, I, she's, she's good in this movie. I, and I think... It helps that Sarah Michelle Geller is just somebody that I think portrays an earnestness. Yes. It is a very earnest I, character. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if, if you had somebody who was maybe more overtly sexual or overtly porn starish <laughs> that I don't know if you could get those emotions portrayed. Right. And, and that's what I think is interesting is that while she is called a porn star and people talk about her porn career and stuff. And this is actually oddly a thing that people knocked the movie on. Was it like, oh, Sarah Michelle Gellar plays a porn star who never gets naked? Like, that was people's, like, one of the knocks against them, you know, because that's how we talked about movies in 2007. Uh, was, and, and I think that that's actually really interesting and important. You have her, and then you also have Nora Dunn, who plays the porn director. And you never see them on a porn set. We never see the porn itself. Yeah. Um, she's never actually depicted in that way. Uh, we know there's a tape of her and Boxer, like, having sex, but we never see it. Um, and I think they're purposefully pretty chaste when it comes to actually portraying that character and kind of makes it seem like, yeah, that's her job, but, like, that isn't totally her as a person. Like, um, her goal in life is not – like, she has higher ambitions um, than just being in porn. It's almost like, you know, if you compare her to, say, like, a Sasha Gray, for example, someone who, like, started in porn and has now tried to, like, maybe transition, and that was just a way of, like, kind of making money and getting their name out there. Mm. Uh, real quick for the listeners out there who I know have been waiting, uh, <laughs> the movie starring Jamie Foxx and Gerard Butler, Law Abiding Citizen. That's right. Which, by the way, fun fact about that movie, they were originally cast in the opposite roles and then just one day went to F. Gary Gray and like, hey, we want to switch. Uh, <laughs> and they let them. Uh, did you know, Brian, that, uh, speaking of you know current movies that are uh, coming up, uh, like Men in Black International, Jamie Foxx and Gerard Butler are going to be starring in a new movie called All-Star Weekend. Yes, that Jamie Foxx uh, wrote and directed. Yes. I'm, it stars I'm curious. Jamie Foxx and Robert Downey Jr. as uh, friends who are opposing fans of sports teams. Is it actually shooting now? I, I, I feel like that's one of those movies that has always said it will happen. By the way, <laughs> Robert Downey Jr., it is so hard to get that guy to do a movie that isn't uh, Tony Stark. But spoiler alert, he has no choice now. Um, it's like The Judge is the only movie he's done that isn't Tony Stark in like the last 10 years. That and Sherlock Holmes. And the fact that Jamie Foxx got him to do, I don't know. I guess he owes him a favor for like uh, fucking uh, uh, due date. Because Jamie Foxx has like a really great like couple scene. Um, I don't know. Jamie Foxx and Downey go back though. They did Soloist together. So good on. I'm curious about it. I'm curious to see what yeah, kind of a director I, Jamie Foxx is. Yeah, this movie gets off the ground. I'm actually intrigued to see what, what they can come up with. Yeah. This Jamie Foxx and Robert Downey Jr. sitting courtside. Yeah, and I, I feel like with Jamie Foxx, he is someone who still enjoys challenging himself. So, like, the one thing with Jamie Foxx that I'll, I'll go to a lot is that Django was not written for Jamie Foxx. Django mm. was written for Will Smith. And Will Smith considers it and then ultimately turns it down because his feeling was that Django wasn't a big enough of, a, of the lead character. Because Django doesn't really become the lead of that movie until the last 30 minutes. It really is more, you know, uh, the, the King Schultz uh, story. And Will Smith just didn't think... So that's why he passed it down. That's why he, he, he turned it down. And, you know, 
did like After Earth or some shit. Like I like that Jamie Foxx is still someone who's willing to, you know, work with directors and kind of challenge himself. All right, Brian. Let, we, let me, let's talk about two more characters before yes. we get to our, our kind of thoughts on this film overall. Wood Harris uh, as Dion Elements. Hey, I, you, so you great. Joke, He's never, he joke. never gets to be funny. He's hysterical in this movie. He's so good. You got Wood Harris, uh, a.k.a. Uh, my man. Uh, I, know, I know everybody wants to go to The Wire, but my go-to is uh, Brooke from The New Edition Story. Mm-hmm. He was great in that. But, yeah, Wood Harris and Amy Poehler scene like that. Like the, the the when they're arguing yeah. uh, or, or uh, draw in the racist cop, like mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a nothing scene. I, well, I mean it's it's important, I guess, but it's a very small scene. But yeah, Wood Harris is good in this movie, and even he is cast against character because he's not usually a guy who gets to be funny. Yeah. Um, I think at this time he's still on the wire, um, and you know that's not a. Uh, 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 you know, not a comedy. I don't think he was nominated for a Golden Globe for that one. Uh, so it's you know it's. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really like him uh, in this movie. Uh, his scenes with Amy Poehler are, 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 are so funny. And then you have, like, an actor like Christopher Lambert, you know, in that small, <laughs> you know, yeah. character. It, it just there's uh, Wallace Shawn as the, the sort of, you know, tech billionaire. Like, there's, I don't know, like, I could just go on and on, but, but as you were saying. Yes, let's, uh, let's, talk, let's focus on two characters uh, before we get to the wrap-up. Number one. Sean William Scott as a private Roland Tavner, and then also Officer Roland Tavner. Yes, you're kind of told at first that these are identical twin brothers and that um, the the twin brother who is a um, who is a cop has been knocked out and his other twin brother is going to be used to sort of stage a racist shooting. Uh, one of the great lines is that he's um, he's doing a ride along with Boxer Santoros, which is sort of like this thing that the neo-Marxists have concocted to create a reason like we're going to stage a racist shooting um, that the son-in-law of this Republican senator is at. And then, like, that'll blow – like, that'll throw the entire election. And it's great because there's a scene where they're driving down the street, and Sean William Scott says the N-word. And they're like, ooh, is that enough? Was that enough on camera? Did, is that all we need? And I think Sherry O'Terry says um, – He's definitely fascist, but not racist. <laughs> like, it's a great little distinction that she has uh, there. But yeah, so Sherry O'Terry is sneaky good in this movie. She's so good. She's so good. And again, she gets to kind of like, be like kind of scary and menacing in a way that, like, again, her character, her as a person, is never asked to do. Um, so you have Sean William Scott, and then you later find out that they are not twin brothers. Um, that that's not his twin. That they are um, when Sean William Scott went through this, you know this wormhole with boxer um they essentially both you know were doubled and uh that was not expected to happen they were not expecting to get to sean william scott's uh out of this um and you later learn that if the two of them touch it will cause a rift in the uh fourth dimension and it will end the world and so the movie ends with the two of them in this ice cream truck that is floating above la yeah there's a floating ice cream truck (laughs) and they're talking to each other um, but it's really just Sean William Scott kind of talking with himself and deciding that he should forgive himself for this friendly fire incident that happened to him when he was in Iraq that leaves uh, the narrator of the film, uh, Justin Timberlake, uh, with a scar on his face. So that's, you know, that's something else. And maybe that's the next person we're going to talk about is, is Justin Timberlake. <laughs> but he is uh, very, very good in this movie. And he also, you know, what's so, what's so interesting about his character is that he's never funny. 
Like there's never you never get to see like that Sean William Scott like stiffler kind of like smile like he's never playing a doofus. He's yeah. very aloof the whole time. Uh, he's very confused. He plays a lot of you know paranoia. He's a guy who in both roles is very confused and trying to figure out what's going on. And he has a very interesting edge to him. And um, I think the interesting thing about him in this movie, as opposed to say the American Pie films, yeah. is in the American Pie films, we're kind of supposed to like him, but we don't. Yeah. But in this movie, he's somebody who's got issues, but you kind of root for him. Right. And then it's, it's so interesting when you kind of, you know, because you have him and Boxer are these two characters that seem very lost. And you don't know what it is. You was, Boxer, you're kind of told up front that he is having amnesia. And uh, um, Tafner, you assume that he's a drug addict is kind of like why he's having issues. And that like he's this drug addict who's impersonating his brother for money. Um, and then by the end, you get to the, the end of the film and you realize what the, what the truth is, why, why both these characters think and feel the way that they do and kind of, you know, realizing that ultimately these two will bring about the end of the world, um, which is a very interesting concept in that it was a thing that was, and, and I think this is something that I, I think really speaks to where we're at politically right now is that these, you know, the, the, these big, I, I think that what I would say is people creating problems Acts, like creating these accidental problems um you know in the beginning of the film we're dealing with we're running out of energy and we have issues with you know climate control and all of this stuff and essentially you have this i guess you want to whatever the energy solution that is created by the train corporation um it, it, it solves one problem then creates a much larger problem which is that it's slowing down the the earth's rotation and is creating this wormhole and uh, and they're like, okay, well, let's have some fun with that. And uh, you find out that this, you know, this Baron Vaughn, uh, forget his last name, uh, that his he actually secretly wants to destroy capitalism and dethrone God. Like he's a super like uh, Marxist, and that's what he wants to do. Um, Baron Vaughn, uh, Westfallen. Yes, and and so he uh, decides we're gonna send this guy through the wormhole. We're gonna find out what happens, and these two will dethrone God. But in doing so, he actually kind of just creates the ability to end the world. And, uh, and that's what, you know, ends up happening with the kind of this Christ figure that Sean William Scott Tavner ends up becoming. And finally. Yes. <laughs> even, even this review. Is, I, 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 this... I, I would love to know what the people uh, who didn't watch this movie, which is probably everyone, uh, yeah. are thinking of this. <laughs> so there's a lot of people scratching their heads about this review. Uh, but finally, let's talk about your man, JT, uh, Justin Timberlake, who is Not the narrator Sasso? of this film, uh, <laughs> Private uh, Pilot Abilene. Yes, who is a, uh, an Iraqi uh, war vet who has some sort of facial scar, and which we later find out was a result of friendly fire from Tavner um, when they were uh, in Iraq. And it's a thing that you don't really find, really get the full story until like literally the last lines of the movie where um, Sean William Scott Tavner has an immense amount of guilt over this. And he thinks it has caused Timberlake's life to kind of spiral out of control. Um, so Timberlake, uh, you know. And they uh, do, uh, if, for those that are, that are watching this movie yes. or, or might want to go back and rewatch this after the review. Now that we've explained do, it. Yeah, well, they do show it at the, in the beginning in those little anim, in that little animated scene. Yes, they oh they they do show it there. Yeah, because it's like uh, when they're going through the entire 
uh, exposition. And yeah. like, there's a scene with uh, animated Sean William Scott with a grenade, and it explodes in front of animated Justin Timberlake. Okay, because that's not in the version that I watched, and I think it's okay. stronger that you don't know that. Um, yeah, and then you kind of and is this explained? Is this explained in the comics? I don't remember if it's explained uh, in that version. So essentially, are these comic books available? Yeah, you can buy them. Uh, you can buy them online. Uh, they're not. I don't know if they're like currently in print, but you can find them online pretty easily. Um, yeah, they they release them separately and then they put them out. I think total they're like a hundred pages. Um, so, so for anybody who wants to get into the Southland Tales extended yes. universe, <laughs> so essentially uh, Tavner and and Pilot both uh, come back. Um, uh, um, Abilene come back from Iraq and um, Tavner becomes a um, a police officer as part of this. Uh, you know, and, and they have like. That uh, you know, up you two uh, on their on their front. So like the yeah. cops are just openly antagonistic and like who cares? Um, and while Pilot uh, the uh, uh, Abilene is a part of just this very increased you know uh, kind of um, domestic monitoring. Uh, um, that's pretty much what his job is. Is that he sits in a he sits at like a machine gun patrolling uh, you know the Venice Beach boardwalk. Like that's what his job is. Um, and, you know, shoot anyone down if anything, you know, uh, occurs. Um, and so that's kind of the two sides they both found themselves in when they come back from Iraq. And on top of that, this Timberlake character seems to have, like, he's he's a bit of a a figure in the local vet community. Uh, a, a lot of uh, veterans who, like, work on his patrol are friends with him, and he's also uh, a, a drug dealer. He's applying, you know, a lot of them um, – you know, a lot of them with drugs. And this film is really kind of, in that regard, really dealing with, because in this film, the draft has been reinstituted and kind yeah. of what it does to this generation of men when they come home and how they're dealing with it. And also how when they come home, and again, this is something that, you know, here we are, you know, 10 years past this film and really starting to have these conversations and grappling with veterans affairs and how we treat people when they come back. And also the fact that our police officers, our local police officers have become so militarized is that, you know, these men come back and they still have these wounds and how do they move on? And in, you know, the sake of this, in regards to this film, they don't, um, you have Tavner and, and Abilene still have these, these, um, you know, physical and mental scars, but not just that they're essentially still soldiers. They're still policing. They're still, you know, they're still being aggressive to these citizens. It's just, Domestically, they're now doing it. And that also leads us to maybe the most famous scene from this film. Yes, the only particularly, one that people know. <laughs> I was going to say, particularly if you haven't seen the film, maybe the one thing that you would know about this movie is there's a musical number where uh, Justin Timberlake's character takes the, was it, Fluid Karma? Yes. And do you know, that's, do that's... You know where Fluid Karma comes from? Do they explain it in the movie? No. I, well, if they did, I missed it. <laughs> yeah, well, Fluid Karma essentially is like this new... Um, fuel that that train corporate again i think this is all in the comics uh the train corporation discovered like while they were mining off the course of coast of israel or something like that it's like this hyper fuel source but it also can get you high uh if you if you take it <laughs> and in that regard that's kind of like a dune type thing with spice but whatever yeah uh but he takes the fluid karma and he uh does a little song and dance number to the killers, all these things that I've done. Yes. So it, it first off, it is a hallucination. Whenever anyone like wants to get weird about this scene, it is a hallucination that is completely happening in his mind. Um, and one of the things I love about it is, you know, how incredibly sad he looks uh, throughout the whole thing. Like, and, mm. and it does feel like someone who drinks or does drugs to 
forget something. And you have that, that momentary moment of escape, but you always return back to the pain that you, that you can't get, get rid of. And so one of the things I love in this is that we know Timberlake can sing. We know he can dance. Like, that's not, like, he's a song and dance man. So you would assume that if you were going to have Justin Timberlake in a musical number, he is going to do some impressive dance moves, and he is going to sing. And he doesn't either. No. <laughs> part of this film, like, purposely going against what you're expecting from everyone in it, he kind of just kind of sways a little bit, and he lip syncs to a killer song. And he does a lot of... Again, like I didn't catch it until you just said it, but now it makes a lot more sense. The, the trying to find escapism, right, uh, to deal with the PTSD, because during this number, yeah, he does the little sway, but he also is kind of staring at the camera a lot, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's just you're, joyless. You're, you're essentially you're in his you're in his headspace, and it's like you know, and he's, I don't know if you do this sometimes, like you get drunk, you know, or or you're hanging out with friends, you just put some music on, you're singing it or whatever. Um, and you kind of, you know, you sort of get caught up in it. And that that's what's happening to him there. You know, he's he's having a trip, but he can't fully escape from it. And and I think the fact that he's surrounded by women that are dressed as nurses. Yes, um, like Marilyn Monroe nurses. Right, and they're saluting him. Uh, you know, if I had to guess, that probably has to tie into something with, you know, you know his medical uh, uh, issues uh, in terms of, like, his rehab and things like that. Just And that's just me sort of just projecting there. But I think the fact that he is being surrounded by nurses – um, and he has his facial scar, I think, you know, kind of go hand in hand. So, yeah, so that's, that's the thing. There's a lot to think about in this movie. There's a lot. And I, and, and it, and it doesn't, it doesn't meet you halfway. You kind of mm. have to go all the way to this movie. But for me, it'd be like, um, you know, uh, not to get too high, high minded or pretentious about it. But like, if you go to the museum, uh, you don't want it to just be a lot of Instagram photos on the wall. You want some stuff that challenges you, some stuff that's different, and some stuff you kind of have to sit and really chew on. And this movie certainly, it's a buffet when it comes to things to chew on. Not, not, not to be high, too high-minded, says the man that watched the con cut. The con, well, it's the original cut. It's the original version of the movie, guys. <laughs> but I, I, would, I would tend to agree, Brian. Like, I think going back to our Nitro reviews, one of the things that we talked about a lot was you might not understand what's going on in these shows or you might not exactly like what's going on, but you're never bored. Exactly. And I was never bored watching this film. And I think that when this movie first came out, um, at least when I first thought about it, I, I my, my initial takeaway from this film was like, would probably be closer to those nitros where I'm like, it is a fascinating failure. Now when I watch it, I do think it is genuinely a masterpiece. I think it's a great, a great film. And, it, and if people can watch that original con cut, if they find it online, definitely you know, watch it. Um, but I'll always take the fascinating uh, failure over, you know, to sort of pull us back to our original roots. If you look at where WWE is right now, um, it's just boring. It's just bland and, and, and boring, and there's really nothing to, to sort of talk about or think about. Um, it's not really presenting you any ideas. Um, and, and I think that that's kind of where a lot of Dwayne Johnson's films get to. You know, honestly, when you get to things like San Andreas or Skyscraper, that's that's Monday Night Raw. Um, I, I think that's where he gets to eventually. And, you know, to kind of pull it back to Dwayne, because that is, what, that, that is why we're here, um, it's just a shame that this movie has the, has the release that it does. Because I think even if this movie comes out... And it gets negative reviews, but maybe it makes $10 million. Like, it still comes up short, but people see it and people talk about it. But this movie just disappeared. 
this movie, mm. uh, most people didn't know it exists. I think the only reason why people even know it exists now outside of like film circles is to sort of be like, oh, you know that one really, really weird movie Dwayne Johnson did? Um, <laughs> and then after this, like he never does anything like this again. I, I think you got like, what, what is it? like, you got like game plan after this. Um, yeah, you know, we got game plan, gridiron gang. Yeah. Race to Witch Mountain. <laughs> and that's the thing. Then he starts to become the, 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 the family guy. Like yeah. he does uh, Planet 51. Um, he's still very much at this point in, in his career, a very lost um, actor. And mm. it, it's interesting. I, you know, I keep bringing it up. I'll be returning for pain and gain, uh, you know, mark your calendars now uh, is that he, <laughs> the next time he really challenges himself and goes outside of his comfort zone is pain and gain. And that movie kind of other underperforms as well. I think that he, I think it's twofold. I think he wants, he, he's massive. He, he's like, he's bigger than big. Like he's like the most followed guy on like all these social media platforms. He is a megastar. He is one of the probably 10 most famous people. Uh, definitely actors in the world right now. He is, you know, a plus list. So I think that for him releasing a film that isn't at that level, I think it's hard for him uh, to, to, to do that. And I think also he is such a business and he is doing yeah. so many things. And I think it's tough for him to say, I'm going to stop all that. I'm going to risk all that in the hands of a director and who knows how it's going to shape up. It's just interesting when you compare him to say uh, Tom Cruise, who Tom Cruise was kind of the first actor because he um, in the, in the mid nineties, Tom Cruise creates his own production company and the whole thing was he wants to work with these big directors. He wants to put himself in the hands of directors. He does Mission Impossible, but he has Brian De Palma direct it. He does uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Doesn't release a movie for three years so that he can, like, you know, shoot a movie for, like, for like a, a ridiculous amount of time. Move to London to make a movie with Stanley Kubrick. These are, and then even after that, he continues to find interesting directors and kind of, you know, he does Magnolia. He really challenges himself because he loves films. He loves the process of, of making movies, he loves trusting directors. What he does with Michael Mann with Collateral, things like this. Dwayne Johnson is not that. Dwayne Johnson is a business. Dwayne Johnson has to be the biggest, um, the, he is the, the buck stops at him when it comes to the movies that he makes. So the directors he works with are kind of people he can sort of push around. And the only time where he kind of goes outside of that, where he isn't the major voice, Pain and Gain is one, and then I guess the other one would be Moana. But that thing does so huge. Right. But that's obviously one where he's not like the, the Disney Corporation is bigger than him. And oddly, when he puts himself in the hands of other people, I think it works out most of the time. But I think that that's something he does not feel comfortable doing most of the time. Well, I think it's a luxury that Dave Batista has that maybe Rock doesn't at this point. Yes. In, in that Batista was a star in wrestling, but he's not the A-plus list actor, the A-plus celebrity that Dwayne Johnson is. Yeah. And so he can do something like The Guardians, which nobody knew was going to take off like it did until it did, or something like Stuber, which I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing. Mm -hmm. well, and I, he can take chances. Well, do you know, uh, so a little bit about uh, Dave uh, and how his film career kind of starts. I don't know if you knew this, but like, so he does that, that uh, Wrong Side of Town movie, and yeah. he shows up on set, and he assumes like, I know what the fuck I'm doing. I'm a big star. I can do this. He he's, you know, does this movie, watches it back, and he's terrible in it. 
And he's like, wow, I gave such a shitty performance. I was so full of myself. And then he decides, okay, I really need to learn how to be, be an actor. I need to be a, a, I need to figure out how to be a really good actor. And the thing that helped him was that he was not lead role starring out of the gate. Dwayne right. didn't have that. Dwayne was your leading man in a major theatrically released film right away. And he kind of, you know, the saying um, is, you know, having to, having to change uh, the tires going 100 miles down the, down the freeway. And so Dwayne's having to figure out what he is and having to improve as an actor in the mainstream, in the public eye. Dave doesn't do that. Dave is kind of fighting. He's kind of learning. He's getting better. He's challenging himself. He's really working with these interesting directors and really pushing himself when it comes to like being in acting classes and things like that. So he eventually gets to where he is now that when he is the leading man, it's because he's kind of earned it. Whereas with mm. Dwayne, it was sort of like thrust upon him. Uh, a little too quickly. And so now where he's at is that obviously he's a much bigger celebrity and, and, and probably much richer than Dave Batista. But when you look at just the work that they're creating, um, yeah, I think Dave is doing much more interesting things. And I think it also kind of goes to show that Dave, now that he's in a, he's in more of a mark in, in an area where he maybe could call his shots a little bit more, he isn't playing it safe. He's continuing mm. to to kind of, push himself and like and do interesting things like he's doing uh he's going to be in the dune movie that uh uh denis uh, villeneuve is doing he was you know he had that great you know little scene in in um blade runner he he is purposefully challenging himself to work with interesting directors and to really make stuff that he's proud of so yeah we'll, we'll put a pin in that and bring it back uh next year when we debut batista box office <laughs> uh <laughs> Uh, I, I think the name of that podcast is I Watch Alone. Thank you very much. Ah, I like it. I like it. And then, then the rating system will be on a, on a scale of one to five Batista bombs. <laughs> so, <laughs> Speaking of rating systems, Brian yes. Mann, here on the Rocky Maivia Picture Show, we have a patented rating yes, system on a scale of one to five. If a movie is fantastic, if it's a cinematic masterpiece, that's a five out of five. That's a great one. If a movie is really good but has, you know, maybe one or two flaws that keep it from being perfect, that's a four out of five. That's the people's champ. If a movie is good but not great, it, it's got too many flaws to, to, to keep it from going to that next level, that's a three out of five. That's a know your role. If a movie is bad but it's not terrible and it has some redeeming qualities, that's a two out of five. That's a jabroni joint. And if a movie is terrible, if a movie has no redeeming qualities, if a movie is Doom, uh, <laughs> which we reviewed last time on the Rocket Mind of Picture Show, that's a one out of five. That is a rock bottom. So, Brian Mann, on a scale of one to five, where would you rank Southland Tales? I mean, listen, if people have made it this far, if they've listened to all my ramblings, I think they can smell what I'm cooking. This is a great one. Wow. This is a great one. I think this might be the first great one rating in the history of the program. Woo. Now, here's the thing. Now, I, I won't spoil my, my pan and game thoughts. Uh, I would say this is a great one in terms of the film. I would say in terms of rock, I think he's at a uh, – what, what's the four? What's the, the people's four? champ. I would, say he's, I would say he's given a people's champ performance. He mm. himself is not yet great. The movie is, though. Now, now here's, a, here's another question, Brian. Do you think watching this movie, one would be benefited from – the supplemental materials, and should they watch the the kind cut? Uh, I would say that if this is your first time watching the movie, absolutely, that should be the one that you watch. I, I actually it was it was interesting because um, I watched that version and just to sort of compare 
I then watched some of the the theatrical uh, cut just so I could sort of you know uh, we, we could sort of talk about it here. And yeah, that first five minutes just completely you know sort of uh, pushes you away. You kind of have that um, that opening sequence, which is um, uh, you know the, the the home video footage of that first uh, that first terrorist attack that sort of you know sets yeah. off. Um, uh, you know the, the events of the film so that in the con cut uh, has Timberlake voiceover it has Moby music playing underneath it and then from that we go into explaining um, we get introduced to Wallace Shawn we see um, the I, I think it's I don't know it comes in later in the con cut but the version that the scene where he is like selling energy rights to like that Japanese businessman and, he's, yeah. and he, he agrees to have his finger cut off um, in exchange for the rights, but instead they cut off his entire hand. Yep. That's like that's like the second scene in the movie, and <laughs> and it uh, in the conversion, and it really kind of like sets a tone. And I think just all the information is rolled out a lot more um, streamlined and a lot more because um, this movie throws a lot at you. But in the con cut, I think it uh, sort of doles it all out um, mm. as the film goes on. Whereas in that theatrical version, which is why I would almost say watch that one second. Uh, you get it's, it's all get thrown on you, and it's too much. It's you, you cannot remember every single thing they're telling you. And I was just kind of amazed watching it, like how long that goes on for. Yeah. Um. Because it's it's like three or four minutes. It's 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 way too long. Um. But no, I think all the supplemental things are kind of um kind of interesting. There's actually this uh if you're able to uh, track it down that Slate did this article. It's called Everything You're Afraid to Ask About Southland Tales. And it was an article that actually came out in 2007, and the guy who wrote it actually read, you know, the Power screenplay. He read all the comic books, and he sort of explains everything, mm. um, uh, everything there. So, and you kind of get like a feeling of this larger universe. But again, you know, you said the George Lucas thing. Um, it is kind of reminiscent of Star Wars, like that. I mean, you can just watch the Star Wars films and be just aware of Skywalker and whatever. But then if you, you know, or feeling bored one day and you go on wikipedia and you like find out like oh my god like you learn about yaddle and uh you know you, you really dig into it and you're like oh wow all these adventures of kit fisto like those uh those are things you can dig into if you want to and that's how i feel about this this movie okay brian this what about you what did you give it here, here we go that's what i'm leading up okay to. because there's a great scene at the end of a not so great movie called men in black 2 mm -hmm. where Spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> if anybody's Spoilers about, for Men in Black 2. Yes. Spoilers for Men in Black 2 coming in. Uh, at the end of the movie, Will Smith is heartbroken because uh, Rosario Dawson left him, which would break any man. Yes. Uh, and he goes to his locker, and there are these little creatures that were in the locker at Grand Central Station, I believe. Uh, and and uh, Agent K put them in his locker to cheer him up. Mm-hmm. And Will Smith looks at the camera and he's like, Kay, why you put the nasty rats in my locker, man? And the first 15 minutes of this movie, I had the Agent J face on. Yeah. And I'm looking at this like, Brian, man, why you put this nasty movie on my TV screen? You're like, uh, Brian, I, I, this is Southland Tales, right? Like, this is <laughs> Southland Tales? This movie for me, Brian, is just in the way I watched it, in the theatrical cut, without any prior knowledge of the film. It's a movie that I think had some big ideas mm -hmm. uh it's a movie that like you said resonates today you know like who would ever think somebody would try to meddle with an election <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it's it's a movie that takes a big swing mm -hmm. uh and it's it's a movie that's shot 
it, like again, I will say, regardless of whether I love the movie or, or not, I think it's shot really well. Yeah, yeah. Like it looks great. Uh, but that being said, I think it it was a big swing, and he, you know, Richard thought he had a home run here. But for me, watching it in this uh, kind of setting, it was like a ground rule double. Okay. Like it, there, there's parts of this movie that I really enjoyed. There are performances, you know, you talk about The Rock or Sean William Scott that I thought were really good, but it just, as a cohesive story, didn't really connect with me. Uh, it, it actually makes more sense now talking about it with you for the last hour mm -hmm. than sitting down and watching the film. So I'm torn. Like, at, at first, I wanted to give this a two out of five, a jabroni joint. Mm -hmm. But the more we talk about it, I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to give it a three out of five. Okay. I'm that, gonna give it three out of five. For. That's the most I can hope for. If I can get someone to a three out of five on Southland Tales, my work is done. I'm gonna give it a know your role because I I think it's it's not a it's not a popcorn film. It's not something that I think you know you're just gonna turn on on a random Saturday to watch. But it's something, particularly if you're a fan of of Dwayne Johnson's film career, it's something you should uh, take a look at. I think it, you should be aware of uh, not to. I'm going to sound very uh, 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 condescending and elitist when I say this, uh, which I've never been known to do. I was going to say, what, I think if you're a big stick fan, to the brand, Brian, stick to the brand. I think if you're a big fan of uh, Dwayne Johnson's film career, this is not a film for you. <laughs> in fact, if you're a fan of anyone in this movie, I don't know why you would say it because <laughs> everyone's so against type. Like, no, nothing in this movie like makes sense in terms of uh, the actors and the image they've cultivated. It's weird. It's big and weird, and everyone's everyone's kind of pissing on their own career in this movie. Unless, actually, no. If you're a Sean William Scott fan, I'm I, mm. you. You would probably enjoy this. I think you would. I enjoy think I read it. a read an interview like it was from a couple years back where Justin Timberlake's like, I still don't understand what the movie was about. Right. And, and the thing that, that I think is, is kind of different is that, like, I don't know, the thing, this movie just swings so big that I think there are a lot of movies out there that the actors in them don't fully understand. But mm. because the opinion around this one is so kind of, uh, I, the actors in this film have no issue making fun of it. Whereas I feel right. like if you, so uh, like a film like Mulholland Drive, uh, the David Lynch film, that's been one where in the cast has been asked about it later. They kind of are like kind of coy about it. Uh, I interviewed Justin Thoreau once and asked him about it, and he was very pointed, like, I don't fully understand it. This movie uh, owes some things to Mulholland Drive. Uh, when they're in the blimp, actually, and uh, the uh, national anthem is sung, it's sung by uh, uh, Rebecca Del Rio, who has a pretty major uh, scene in Mulholland Drive where she sings in that as well. So I, I think it's one of these big movies that, yeah, it doesn't really fully <laughs> make sense. Um, and because it is just sort of like this weird curiosity, I think um, it's a weird curiosity everyone just sort of abandoned and walked away from. Like, mm. uh, Richard Kelly's not really around to defend it. I don't think the actors ever are really asked about it. When they are, they kind of dismiss it. So Brian gives it a five out of five, a great one. I give it a three out of five, uh, a know your role. Let's see what the Postmarks had to say uh, over on the Post Wrestling Forum. Brian Mann. I think this these results will probably not surprise you. Yes. 33% of the audience gave this a rock bottom, a one out of five. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I will say, though, it's better. How many, how many great ones? Anyone give it a great one? <laughs> we're, we're, we're building to that. We're building okay. to the crescendo. 50% of the audience gave this a two out of five, a That's jabroni right. joint. 17% of the audience agreed with me and gave this a three out of five, a know your role. 
Zero okay. percent of the audience gave it a people's champ, and zero percent of the audience gave it a great one. <laughs> well, you got one. You got one, guys. Uh, so the consensus from the uh, audience is it's a jabroni joint. I gave it a, a, a know your role, and Brian gave it a great one. So it kind of averages out to a, a strong know your role. But here's the thing that I that I also again I gotta say it again, and I'll actually. You don't ever have to watch it, but I'm I'm gonna send you uh, the con cut if you want to even just watch the first ten minutes to see how that how that's kind of different. Um, all I can say in my defense is, guys, I saw a different movie than you guys did. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean the, the thing is like yeah, that original theatrical version. If I watched it again, like again, I only watched the first you know five ten minutes of it, and I was like, yeah, this is a two, maybe a three movie. Um, and and I don't I don't you know, really begrudge anyone for thinking that because uh, it, it, it is very compromised and it is a mess. And it and mm. I can see why a lot of people would kind of look at it um, and be like, ah, it swings for the fences. It tries a lot of things, but it doesn't quite work. Um, but again, that con cut, which I think is the con cut, but also Richard Kelly, because it didn't debut until a couple years after the theatrical version. I think it's a mixture of the con cut, but also him kind of tinkering with it and sort of learning from the failures of the of the release. Mm. Um, so, I mean, that's the thing, like, it's kind of like a fixed version and it's, it's weird. Like I would compare it to say a movie like Blade Runner, you know, Blade Runner comes out initially the theatrical version and it's very compromised. The producers kind of took it away from Ridley Scott. And then, you know, a couple years later, um, Ridley Scott ends up releasing this director's cut, which kind of replaces, uh, Blade Runner. So now, like if you watch, uh, Blade Runner on a streaming platform, something like that, the director's cut is kind of the version you see. Um, right. So that original theatrical version is kind of discarded, not really, you know, referred to as the actual movie. And I feel like this film could benefit from that. But because it made no money at all, uh, it just sort of disappeared. And the only reason anyone would talk about it is uh, in a retrospective of all of Dwayne Johnson's work. <laughs> uh, well, we've also got a little bit of feedback Ooh, from okay. the listeners here. Brian Mann, uh, again, over at Post Wrestling uh, on the Post Forum. Tony starts us off. This is not just The Rock's worst movie. <laughs> this is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. What on earth is going on? If this is a pseudo-political movie where you're trying to portray the left and right as equally bad, you have nothing to say. As a massive Donnie Darko fan, I had high hopes for this. But what a massive letdown. I will say, performance-wise, The Rock, Buffy, Stifler, JT, etc. are all pretty okay to actually good in this absolute arscape or our scrape of a movie. <laughs> I mean, listen, uh, a lot of that's wrong, but uh, I, I mean, I will say that that I, I don't think it's saying that both the right and the left are wrong. I don't think it's making uh, that argument at, at all. I, I think that it's 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 a lot more interested in more than just left and right. Uh, I think mm. it's dealing with a lot of different political factors. I think it's kind of looking at the broad spectrum that people can land on. There's even a line in the in the you know narration. That they essentially say the Democratic Party doesn't exist anymore uh, in, in this particular yeah. in this particular world. So yeah, it's not you've got the Republicans and then the the neo Marxists, right? And so they're not saying that like oh the left and the right are both bad. Uh, what they're kind of saying are like these extreme kind of political factors because um, you're really just sort of dealing with two sides of this war, and your average person is kind of ignored in all of this. Yeah. Like you look at you know um, I, I think if you look at um, the Kristen Now character, I don't think she's a neo-Marxist. I don't think that no. that's where she lands. I, I think that there's a broad range that people kind of fall uh, uh, along. All right, let's move on to Dino. 
I don't know or remember even hearing of this. I will say the trailer has me mildly intrigued. Will I live to regret it or forget all about it in five minutes? Dot, dot, dot. So Dino will have to get back to us and let us know. Okay, good. Well, come back around. <laughs> and finally, we, we have our last piece of feedback from uh, Imran from Huddersfield. All right, confession time. I really like this movie. Finally! Someone it's... sees the light. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's dumb. It's completely batshit mental. And I find it very weirdly watchable. Now, I fully realize this is not by any normal metric a good movie. The plot is all over the place. It's confusing. And whatever Richard Kelly was going for really doesn't land at all. But damn it if The Rock trying his best to play a jittery pimp and Justin Timberlake lip syncing to the killers doesn't keep me entertained. Yeah, I He mean, has a question, but I'll let you respond to that part. No, I mean, and, and again, I feel, I'm you know, I'm a broken record, but like, again... This is this is the theatrical cut. The theatrical cut's not good. The theatrical cut is kind of messy and it doesn't make sense. And, um, you know, I think it's just one of these movies you do kind of just go along for the ride with it. Um, you and and, and I think that um, again, the other cut does a much better job of doling out the information. Because um, here's it: like this movie always has something for you. At no point are you sitting there checking your phone. You know, right. like there's this thing keeps your attention and is always saying something. And I do think it is. It is messy, but I think it, it means to be. Like, the movie doesn't become, you know, two and a half hours and include a dozen characters by mistake. Um, it's it's there, you know, pretty pointedly. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think it's just interesting because, like, if you were to watch a movie like Robert Altman's Shortcuts or something like that, you wouldn't be like, it's just so messy. And it's like, yeah, well, that's the point. Like, that's what he's trying to do. Like, it, it is overpopulated. And Imran's question, Brian. Yes. I've long said this is the movie that I really like that I would never recommend to anyone. So what movie do you really like but would never recommend to a friend? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, huh. I don't know. I hate that this is the first thing that kind of came to my mind. Um, I feel like Ocean's 12 is a movie that, <laughs> that gets really misunderstood that I absolutely love. Um, I don't know. Like, I definitely have them. I definitely have, like um, – you know, if I'm just throwing out, like, hot takes right now, uh, I was having this conversation with a friend the other day. I, I think it's time that we, as a culture, uh, come around and really start to reevaluate the Joel Schumacher Batman movies. Uh, I think that for the longest time, Batman and Robin in particular had a very negative – it left a, lot, a bad taste in people's mouth, I think largely because people saw it as killing the franchise. That, oh, we're not having any more Batman movies because look what they did there. But now that we are fucking two iterations of the character heading into the third iteration of the character since then, I think we can kind of watch it and view it for what it is. Um, and, and kind of, you know, it's batshit and wild. But, like, again, that's one that I, I don't think it has as much on its mind as Southland Tales. But it's one movie that I think if you go back and you watch now, you can kind of appreciate it for what it was and what it was trying to do. And I, you know, I'll go to the grave saying this. I mean, I'll take the Jill Schumacher Batman over a Zack Snyder back, Batman, uh, you know, any day. <laughs> All right, Brian Mann said that, folks. I didn't say that, so all the, all the, the, the Snyder maniacs out there can, can can hit you up on Twitter. Oh, and they will. <laughs> um, they, they, they haven't made it this far. I'm going to talk about This is an interesting question for me because if I like a movie, I'm going to tell people about it. Yeah. Like, even, if it, even if I know it's a bad movie and I still like it, I will, like, I'm not, uh, you know, there's, there's no shame in my game, Brian Mann. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to tell people about it. But I guess for the purposes of this question – 
I'll go with a superhero movie as well and say Blade Trinity. Yes. Like, Blade Trinity is not a good movie. It's easily the worst of the Blade franchise, but I like it and I enjoy it because it almost feels like somebody did a profile of me and took out things that they knew I would like but didn't know how to apply them. Like, you got a superhero <laughs> movie. You got a superhero movie starring a black dude. You got uh, Ryan Reynolds being funny. You got uh, the RZA doing the music. You got a wrestler in the movie, and you got Parker Posey, who I love. And it's like all these things individually that I like, but when they're put together, they don't work at all. But I like Blade Trinity. Exactly. That one's up there. I mean, one that uh, just um, kind of came up in my mind, um, and I, again, I don't know if this really falls in that same uh, line, but I think another movie that was kind of ahead of its time and got you know kind of forgotten was Observe and Report, uh, mm. the the Seth Rogen movie. That I think people kind of looked and it's like, oh, like – we just had Paul Blart, like whatever. And I think that if you, uh, you know, watch that movie now, I think it really perfectly captures a particular type of, um, uh, of American male. Um, shout out Marcus Bagwell. So you're saying Observe and Report is uh, what were the two movies? The the meteor movies. We had uh, oh, we had uh, well, there was Deep Impact. And, yep. uh, and then uh, Don't Want to Miss a Thing. What was that one? Bruce that was Armageddon. Jones. And Armageddon, Armageddon was the much yeah. larger one. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Paul Blart in this in this theory is Armageddon. Right. And Observer Report is Deep Impact. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that's fair. <laughs> uh, you, you know what I am not ashamed to tell my friends about, Brian Man. What's that? The Rocky Mavia Picture Show and this episode in particular. It oh, was okay. uh, great having you back, my friend. Uh, for the people out there that want to find more of your work and, and, and hear about what you're doing uh, and also see your crusade. Yeah, why uh, they don't want to do that. Why they do that? I mean, I'm sure as soon as we finish recording, you're going to go on Twitter, hashtag release the con cut. Uh, I, so you'll have, you'll have that in common with the Zack Snyder fans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All the Zack Snyder films playing at the Con Film Festival. Um, although I do, I, I don't know, I could be wrong. I feel like uh, uh, Sucker Punch might have played there out of competition. I could be wrong. I think I'm really? wrong. I think one of his movies played there, or maybe not. I don't know. I'm, I'm not gonna lie, Brian. I had I had some Zack Snyder tendencies watching this because Zack Snyder can. Yeah. He he makes a hell of a pretty movie. Uh yeah, but Zack Snyder's movies are just a lot more straight up fascist than uh <laughs> like his his are un unquestionable. I mean, the fact that uh, his next big dream project is an adaptation of Atlas Shrugged, I think is mm. is, is kind of oh, you gotta you got oh no Fountainhead. He wants to do Fountainhead. Either way, he's a big Iron Rand fan. You know what they say, Brian, better fascist than racist. Yes, yes. Oh. Um, so where, where can the people find you? Uh, yeah, you find me everywhere, Brian Max Man. That's what it is on whatever, you know, website or fucking social channel, whatever. Uh, you know, I mean, I think social media is bad, so I'm trying not to be on there all that much. Uh, it's funny, I, I pretty much go on there just to, like, vent about WWE. And <laughs> then, uh, like, I was I, – I, I remember I was tweeting about wrestling, and, like, someone was like – don't you like anything or like, why are you unhappy all the time? And I'm like, you only know me on Twitter. Like, I think people can kind of <laughs> listen. I think this is the thing that'll be refreshing about, you know, like this episode in particular is like, I don't get to be publicly enthusiastic and happy about things that often <laughs> when it comes to, you know, podcasts and stuff. It's so like, Hey, you know, I was, I was happy to talk about this. Um, yeah. So there you go. So that's where you can find brother man. You can find me on Twitter at in the number eight M O Z A I K at Nate Mosaic on Twitter. You can also check out my other podcast, the Kings of Sport podcast, where uh, Brian Mann has been a guest in the past. Uh, you can check that out at uh, Cospod K O S underscore P O D Cospod on Twitter. Uh, 
Check out our Patreon, patreon.com backslash Kings of Sport. Uh, become a patron and get access to a bunch of interesting shows like the Kings of Sport video uh, version of the podcast, The Twenty Twin Twin, which is a political show featuring myself and uh, Christopher Marquise Ely, the professor, Chris from L.A., and uh, all the back episodes of the Luke Cage podcast, Always Forward, can be found on the Kings of Sport Patreon as well. I uh, want to send some shout-outs, props, and plugs to Brother Austin James for the graphic design, the logo here on the Rocky Mountain of the Picture Show, as well as Braden Harrington for creating the theme. And one last thing before we let you know what we're going to be watching next time. For those out there, if you don't have home, auto, or life insurance, don't sweat it. If you don't know a thing about stocks but want to invest money, don't fret it. And if your bank account balance makes you want to jump out the window, please don't do it. Because remember, you're a pimp, and pimps don't commit suicide. So make a pimp decision and hit me up. As a licensed insurance agent, I can help you with those questions and concerns. And if I can't, someone on my team can do it. Who'd ever think that I could weave Southland Tales into a plug for <laughs> Who my insurance job. I mean, I thought you could have. I mean, that's that's what Richard Kelly intended this work to be anyway, uh, helping out his fellow Virginian. Uh, but as I mentioned, Brian, yes, we will be back next month with another edition of the Rocky Mountain Idea Picture Show with a film that is a lot more straightforward than Southland Tales. Of course, we're going to be reviewing 2006's Gridiron Gang. Most young people they make a bad choice, they have their car keys taken away or get grounded. Then there are the ones that make a bad choice. <laughs> they get sent here. You'll be here until the court decides what to do with you. Do you understand? According to the teaching staff, the inmates here have trouble responding to authority, being a member of a team, and accepting criticism. Now, what one activity can improve them in all these areas? So you want to start a football team? Exactly. Your neck is way, way out on this. Everybody listen up. The gridiron is a football field. On the gridiron, we do it my way, not your way. Your way got you here. We're damn 88. Whatever gang you claim, whatever hood you're from, this is your hood now. Hustle, touch that line and get back. I want to be a Mustang coach. I want to show people I can play. It's harder than a loser. Maybe when I get out, Mom, we can live together again. Football is great. Dig in there. I'm good at it now. What the hell is this? A nose guard. My kids have been in this program for three years. You have four weeks to prepare your team. Do you really want to go up against those kind of odds? No problem. We wanted to create self-esteem, but it was just the opposite. They can't handle that kind of disappointment. Now it's time to see who has the heart. Now is the time to prove to yourselves and prove to everyone out there that even though you're locked up, you are somebody. Not lose no more. All we gotta do is go out there and show it one more time. That's why we're here, because we care. Because the show ain't the money.
So that's just a sneak preview of what we're going to be playing next time on the Rocky Mountain Video Picture Show. It's almost like we went back in time, Brian. Like, like we went through a wormhole because this movie debuted, South on Tales debuted in, in 07 in America. And we're going to go back a year to talk about Gridiron Gang next time. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. If you're going by theatrical or whatever, yeah, it's like technically Southland sandwiches this one. It, it's just like Boxer Santoros. Like, he, he goes mm. back in time uh, 69 minutes. <laughs> yeah. How do we make it through the entire episode about Southland Tales and this is the first time 69 comes up? Oh, it's very prominent in the film itself. Because it is very, <laughs> very prominent in the Proposition movie. Proposition 69. <laughs> uh, well, hey, Brian, I really enjoyed uh, sitting down and, and having this chat and, and helping and for you helping to illuminate the, the, the finer points of this film, not only to me, but to the listeners as well. Uh, and like a true worker, you've already booked yourself on a future edition of the program. Yes, I mean, I really had my working boots on uh, over time defending this film. And uh, listen, I'm, I, you know, I was very happy you had me on Scorpion King. It finally gave me a reason to watch that movie. But I, <laughs> I, like, I like the challenging ones. I like to take a big bite. And, uh, you know, listen... Yeah, it's fun to sit around and just talk about how cool Fast Five is, but man, I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to 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 Vin and Painting Game. So that is Brian Mann, my my once in future podcast tag team partner. Thanks again to Brian for joining us this week. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Rocky Maivia Picture Show. And again, you can check out the archives of the episodes you might have missed at Post Wrestling. So shout out to John and Wayne, the good people at Post Wrestling. Uh, let's see. Any anybody else I need to thank before we get out of here? Oh, shout out to Moby, who can get stomped by Obi. Damn, I meant to talk about Moby. The, the, his his music is so great in this. The the remix yes. of the Pixie song. He took a you know he took a, a break from not dating Natalie Portman to compose the score <laughs> to this. Uh, yeah, MVP Moby doing good stuff. Yeah, in this movie. yeah. This is this is how we want to remember Moby. Yes, South not <laughs> not as kind of creepy old dude Moby. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so shout out again to you guys and girls for checking out this edition of the Rocky Mavia Picture Show. And we'll be back in the theater next time to review the Gridiron Gang. So, for Brian Mann, I am the Godfather, Nate Milton. And remember, pimps don't commit suicide. And as always, Nubian Eyes will be watching. Turn your ass on out of here. No!